Ruth Harms Calkin explains feelings that many of us have felt or, feel, or are feeling now. And it's called, could you hurry a little? Could you hurry a little? She writes, Lord, I know there are countless times when I must, must wait patiently for you. Waiting develops endurance. It strengthens my faith and deepens my dependence on you. I know you are a sovereign God, not an errand boy, responding to the snap of my finger. I know your timing is neatly wrapped in your incomparable wisdom, but Lord, you have appointed prayer to obtain answers. Even David the psalmist cried with confidence boldness, it is time, O Lord, for you to act. God, on this silent, sunless morning, when I am hedged in on every side, I, I too cry boldly, you are my father and I am your child. So Lord, could you hurry a little? You know, most of us have been impatient and hesitant, a time, a two, or 10, especially when we aren't in control of a situation or sure of a situation. How many of you feel that you have to have every T crossed, every die audited, dotted, not audited, dotted, everything so you know where you are going at every minute of the day and what you're going to do when you get there? How many of you are like that? Oh, not too many. Oh, I've got one hand raised. The rest of you are kind of going, yeah, I really am, but I'm not going to admit to it. Thank you, Sue. Whether it be seemingly an unimportant or life-changing event, and depending on a response, listen to this, depending on our response, our life can turn out to be empty or full. Empty or full. Well, last Sunday, we celebrated the resurrection of our Lord Jesus, the day that proved to be the best day ever. And because Jesus lives, we learned, we understand, and we know this, but we have to be, because we're humans, we have to be taught over and over and over and over again. The sacrificial, sacrificial death of Jesus was, was acceptance the resurrection that was acceptance by God the Father. Because Jesus lives, everyone, and I mean every single person who has put their faith and trust in God, will be raised as well. And believe what he has said, will be given new life. We are given new life now. If you're in Christ, you have, a, you have new life. You will rise again just as he did. And that truly is great news. And it changes lives. Well, speaking of that day, let's just go over that again because we need to be reminded because we are humans. We forget. It is written for us. The brave ladies arrived at the tomb at dawn or just before it on that Sunday morning. Mark's gospel tells us this. Now, please listen because there's a hint What's going to come today? 
The angel said, do not be alarmed. Yeah, easy for him to say, easy for us, <laughs> not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen, he is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter, made sure they put Peter in there because they did not want Peter left out, and Peter, that he, Jesus, is going before you to Galilee. He is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him again, just as he told you. The ladies told the disciples. Peter and John heard this for sure because Peter and John ran to the tomb. Peter marveled. John believed. Later that afternoon, we hear the story. Tim read it for us this morning. People on the road to Emmaus, two disciples. I love the story. The two guys, haven't you heard? What, are you the only person who didn't know what happened this past three days in Jerusalem? <laughs> yeah, I knew. It was, it was all about me. But Jesus was kind. He, was, he, was, he brought them out. He was asking them questions. And as they walked along the seven-mile road to Emmaus, he explained to them from the Scriptures that he would need to die. The Messiah, the Christ, would need to die. And then they begged him, come on and eat with us. Come on and eat. It's a great way. People love to eat together. It's a, it's a sign of respect and honor and, your, and closeness. And Jesus breaks the bread and hands it to them. They didn't know who he was until he did that. Lights went on. And instead of staying in Emmaus, they ran seven miles back in the dark to Jerusalem, where they found the other huddled disciples who were scared to death, and they said, the Lord's risen. And Jesus showed up there. He said this to Christ when he came there. They thought he was a ghost. But Christ said, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name, he's talking about himself, to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Listen to this. He again tells them, you are witnesses of these things. You are witnesses of these things. That was their job. They'd been called to do this. That was their job. Well, the main band of disciples hung around together for the rest of the feast. They didn't take off to Galilee right away. They, they were still in hiding. Okay, rightfully so. They were scared to death. Wouldn't you be? Wouldn't you be? We're told eight days later, his disciples were inside again, again, Locked up, scared, who was going to knock on the door? His disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Why, why, is this, why is Thomas mentioned here? Because Thomas, on the night that Jesus showed up the first time, wasn't there. We aren't told where he was at. But he told the other disciples, I don't believe you. Remember, Jesus was killed real bad. 
No one can come back from that. And Thomas said, I will not believe unless I can put my fingers in his hand and my hand in his side. I won't do it. I won't believe it. You guys are crazy. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, how dare you not believe me? Did he say that? No, he did not. He said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You're in that verse. You haven't seen Jesus personally yet, but you've believed. And then he left them. He left them there, evidently to head north, some 75 miles to the Galilee region, where every one of the 11 disciples who were left, the 11 that we know, the 12, of the 12, the 11 disciples, only Judas was from the north, excuse me, from the south. All the rest of the 11 were from the Galilee region. They were called to go home. And they obeyed his words, but they didn't travel as a group. They went out, I don't know, in twos, threes, They didn't want to draw attention to themselves. They still felt that they had a target on their back. Not knowing what laid ahead, only that they were called to go to a mountain where he had told them to meet. He meets people in different ways. He meets each one of us in different ways. Out of respect to the word of God, would you stand as I read the first verse from this morning's passage? Again, it's found in John chapter 21, and I'll read verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. May it stir us to open our eyes and may we see God working among us. May we open our ears to hear what the Spirit of God has to say to us. May we hear his voice and being, if we hear his voice, may we obey it. We hear his voice. Through your word, O God, so we may live lives that are full, not empty, but full. Thank you, Father. You may be seated. All right, so before you, I hope now's the time, Lib, if you can get that picture up there for me. That's just a a picture of the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee, 
the Sea of Tiberias, many names that it's named by, by Capernaum. Now, Capernaum is where Peter, his house was, where his fishing business was located at. And most scholars believe that this is where this event took place. So that's just the shoreline looking at the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is not a sea, all right? It's an inland lake. It looks like a heart. I think it's in the widest point. I believe it's seven miles wide, and I think it's around 14 miles long. And it's always hazy. At least now, it's always hazy. Let's begin with the fishermen on the sea. We aren't told what mountain Jesus told them to meet at. The scriptures don't tell us this. Could it have been the mountain where he gave the Sermon on the Mount from? I believe that's where it was because it's right outside of Capernaum. It's also where Peter was from, again, where his fishing business was located at. How long had they been waiting? How long had they been waiting? We aren't told this. And I think for reasons, for good reasons, because we would have put ourselves, well, okay, well, they waited five days, so I'm going to wait six, and I'll have, it, I'll have it nailed. We don't know how long they waited for Jesus to show up. And they had to be thinking, how long are we going to have to wait? Okay, I know, I know we know that Jesus is Lord. I know we know that Jesus is God, but I have to put myself the way I would act. How long am I going to have to wait for this? Doesn't he know who I am? I'm one of the 12. Uh-huh. You're one of the 12. I know that Jesus told us we were supposed to meet here. I know he told us we're supposed to proclaim his message to the world. But understand, I'm a human, and I'm going to need food pretty soon. They hadn't worked for three years. How long have we gone without food? I remember I ate last night. I had a place to sleep last night. The cares of this world, how am I going to do this and how is God going to provide for me? I don't know, and that's part of the thing I don't know, and it's scary. Not only that, Peter, at least Peter, how am I going to prepare? How am I going to care for my wife? How am I going to be able to house her? He was married. We understand that from the Gospels. Peter wouldn't have a mother-in-law unless he was married. Well, before Jesus had died, he'd personally been with them. He was with them. He walked with them. He talked with them. He ate with them almost 24 hours a day, except when he was up praying, always when he was praying. He prayed so much. And every single one of their needs were taken care of. Now they felt... Remember, they felt, I know feelings, they felt they were alone. Remember, the Spirit of God has not come yet. They still needed Jesus' presence. Should they just wait? How many of you just are good at waiting? I hear some chuckles. 
they probably began to believe that they knew more about their current situation than the Lord did. Let that sink in because I meant it to sink in. That's why I said it very slowly. And since some of them had been professional anglers, more than half, I suppose why they thought. Remember, if they were waiting in Capernaum or they were waiting on the mountain, they could see the Sea of Galilee here, and they go, you know there are fish out there. You know I'm getting hungry right now. You know that I don't know. Jesus isn't here. Maybe for some reason, you know, he's always told us the truth, and everything he's always said has come to, come to pass. Maybe this time, maybe this time it's not going to happen. Well, yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. No, it might not. Yeah, it is. Have you ever been there? You're arguing back and forth. It's going back and forth. I know no one wants to admit it. Well, should they go? The boats are still there. The nets are still good. Right where we left them. Jesus hadn't told us not to go. He didn't tell them that they should either. If he wanted to find them, oh, come here. If he wanted to find us, he found us before that anyway. He'll know where to look. I'm just talking myself into it. And one evening, they talked themselves into it. I don't know how long it took, but they decided we're going to do something that's comfortable. We're good men. We're going to take care of this. We're going to take care of this, and we're going, to, we're going to feed ourselves, which is good. We need to provide for ourselves, which is good. But what did Jesus tell him? I will meet with you in Galilee. They jumped in on their own. They didn't wait for the Lord. They jumped in on their own. We have to understand this. Before Jesus, Peter the 12, you, have a, had a vocation. You had something to do. Even, even you young folks in, the, in that row right there, your vocation is school right now. You have a vocation. But after they met Jesus and he called, they had a calling. They were called to do something. They were called to be fishers of men. And they were choosing to ignore this. Ever been there? Have you ever been there wondering what to do? I, no, I don't know. God, answer me, please. You're wondering what to do and deep down knowing that God has called you to walk with him and maybe God has called you to do something very, could be very hard or very simple, but choosing to ignore is not what we should do. Deep down knowing that God has called you to walk with him. walk in his steps. Has he called you to fish for him? Well, here's what happened in verse two. 
Simon Peter, Thomas. Notice the first two that are named. Who are the first, the first two that probably had the biggest reason not to really want to be with Jesus? Thomas denied him, or not didn't deny, Peter denied him three times. And Thomas didn't believe. They're named first. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, also known as the sons of thunder, James and John. And two others of his disciples were together. And Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Skunked. It was a visible and frustrating reminder that even talented professionals fall short. They fall short. They were living out what Jesus, who was the master of analogies, had told them just weeks before when he had said this. The night before he died, Jesus had said this to them. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. What did the disciples catch? Nothing. Now, before you think that, well, it was just a bad day at the office, a bad night at the office, or bad luck, think again. Think again. Nighttime was the best time to fish. They knew the lake well. Again, they were experienced fishermen. Why were their nets empty? Why were their nets empty? Why had all of their hard work been fruitless? And again, I ask the question, why were their nets empty? Because the Lord Jesus had been left out. He had been left out. Their nets were empty because God was going to show them that they, he had something better for them. He uses life. He had something better for them than fishing for aquatic animals. They'd go fishing all right. That they could trust someone who not only conquered death, but who would soon lovingly give them a lesson in concern, concerning his control. He could even turn their impetuousness into a teaching moment that they would carry for them the rest of their days. They would always remember this day, always remember. And we'll see that they didn't remember a time three years earlier. But they'd always remember this day, and this lesson is relevant today, as relevant today as it was then. The question needs to be asked, ladies, men and women, boys and girls. 
Are your nets empty? Are your nets empty? If they're coming up empty and assuming that you have trusted Christ for your eternity, have you possibly gone out on a boat without him? Are you busy? But busy without Christ? Are you diligently working but not listening to your heavenly boss? Like these fishermen by themselves on the sea, you might need to take a minute to listen to the fisher of men on the shore. Jesus had been watching. Who am I kidding? He'd been orchestrating the whole event. <laughs> it's, this is a picture now of what it would have looked like. Oh, I guess it's gone dark on us. It's okay. It was a picture from the boat on the Sea of Galilee looking towards Capernaum. It was a place that I was able to be at, and I was not on the boat, but I was able to be there a, a few years ago where one of my uh, favorite professors from seminary took us, and he had a very special uh, message there that day. I think that spoke to a man in this audience. There's the picture. There was the picture. There's the picture. You can't really see it too well. It would be just as the disciples saw it, except without the church, the modern building and all the modern enmities that go with it. I just wanted to get you a picture. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. Come on, let's be real. And when this word children's, it could also be, if you were an English person, you would say, lads, do you have any fish? It's a term of endearment. I would, in today's society, I don't know if I can use this word. I use it many times. Boys, got any fish? And we need to understand that after Jesus had been raised from the dead. There was something about his appearance. I, asked, I told this before, I, I spoke about it before. People, until they were allowed to see, they did not recognize him. There was something different. And even those closest to him were kept from seeing him it until he chose to reveal him to them. Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene, who loved him deeply, the two, road, two men on the road to Emmaus. The first time the disciples saw him together, thought he was a ghost. Again, here at daybreak, some 100 yards away, through a hazy, hazy finish or a glaze, I don't know what they were looking they could. Who is that guy that's yelling at us? And believe me, they're frustrated. They're angry. They're mad. We've caught nothing. Have you been there? Yes, I'm there more than I'd care to be because I'm not that good a fisherman. There's nothing unusual here about a buyer yelling from the shoreline, have you got any fish? I want to buy them. That's probably what they thought was going on here. But instead of making a smart remark like I would have, Jesus tells them to do something like they had heard before. 
They had heard this somewhere way back. I've heard something like this before following a familiarly, familiarly frustrating night. He said to them in verse 6, he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. <laughs> right. The boat was probably about seven and a half feet wide. So you're telling me all I have to do is take the net from this side, my left, I'm sorry, you're right, I should do it this way, your left, and throw it over to the right. And that's going to do something. What could cause a group of frustrated men to listen to a man who they had no idea who he was, who couldn't see clearly there is nothing on this side of the boat? Do you think we're crazy? Do you think we have not tried this? Was it something in his voice? Was it his calmness? Was it his majesty? Could it have been his certainty? Could it have been his authority? We don't know, but they obeyed that voice. So they cast it, the net, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. just as it had happened three years earlier on another fruitless night when their nets had been empty in the word of Jesus. At the word of Jesus, they had suddenly become full. Would you take your scriptures, please, your Bibles, and turn to Luke chapter 5. Three years earlier when Peter had been personally called into service to our Lord God. If you don't have your scriptures, you can read it on the screen, but if you do, I would much rather you read it yourself from either your phone or your, or your Bible. Luke chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, again, another name for the Sea of Galilee. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, this is another word for Peter, Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I'll let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled at their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink but when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me. I am a sinful man, O Lord. 
For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their net or their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Had the gears in Peter's head started to, to mesh? Had the wheels started to spin? I think maybe so. I know they were spinning in John's mind. But what can we learn? What can we learn about it? Well, first, let's look at the similarities of the stories. Both happened early in the morning on the Sea of Galilee, on the shore of Galilee near Capernaum. Both in the same area of the shoreline. And both instances focus, focus on how Peter responded. Now, we'll get to that later, how he responded. And both times the boys were skunked. Both times the boys were frustrated. And both times at the word of the Lord, nature obeyed and responded by filling the nets of the fishermen. Both times failure was turned into success by doing what Jesus had commanded. Well, what are the differences? The second time, pretty simple. The anglers were told to throw the net on the right side of the boat instead of into the deep. Again, seven and a half feet of difference. It was all of God. It was a miracle. The first time, Jesus told them to go out from shore and let down their net. The second time, they went on their own. The one that I want to focus on, because it relates to me and probably many of you here today, is the response of Peter. In the first experience, Peter responded how? How did he respond? Get away. Depart from me because I'm a sinful man. The second time he was still sinful, but he couldn't wait to get near Jesus. That's the difference. He was still a sinful man, but he did something that we'll read here. He, I can't wait. I've got to come to you. Jesus had patiently, calmly, lovingly reminded Peter about his calling into ministry. Make no mistake. And he patiently calls you. Verse 7, that disciple whom, Peter, whom Jesus loved, who was John, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard it was the Lord, he put out it on his outer garment, for he had stripped down for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came, into the boat, came in the boat, dragging a net full of fish, for they were not far from land, but about a hundred yards off. A head, this headstrong, hard-headed as Peter was, he understood that Jesus was calling him again to follow him. He couldn't wait to get to him. He couldn't wait. He had known that he had screwed up. He knew that he didn't deserve to be there, but he heard, it's the Lord, I've got to get there. I've got to get to him. 
And we'll see this next week when we study the last section of John 21. Peter had failed his dearest friend. He'd failed. Denied him three times. And now he, he just went fishing instead of waiting. He'd, I, don't think, I don't know if it was sin. I don't think so. But he said, I, I've got to help myself. Peter understood or began to understand that if Jesus could orchestrate a school of fish to swim into a once empty net of human effort and instead fill, his, fill the net with his blessings because of his obedience, this man, this Savior, this Lord is worth following. The bottom line is this, Jesus is implying here, and he will tell Peter, leave your old life behind and don't look back. Leave it behind. Don't waver in your insecurities. I will provide. Trust me. Well, if we didn't already know that Jesus understands us, and by us I mean a human being, we get a picture of that now. Verse 9, when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. In the Greek language, with a fish laid out on it. Had the charcoal fire reminded Peter of the last time that he sat near a charcoal fire outside? Three times, denying his Lord when he promised that there is no way I will die for you. And a little slave girl, you're one of him, you're one of his. Nope, not me. Three times. And Peter began to think, oh, this might not be such a good idea. Maybe I ought to jump back. Maybe I ought to swim to the other side. If so, Jesus doesn't leave him hanging. He doesn't leave him there to stew in his own juices. Jesus breaks the silence. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. Bring some of the fish. He already has a fish on the, on the fire. And if we know our Lord, he can uh, do a lot with a fish, right? He can do a lot with a tiny barley loaf. But the Lord invites Peter to help. You provide what you have just caught. Now, if we understand the story, it wasn't because Peter was a great fisherman, was it? It was the Lord who had provided the fish. He invites the seven to give what they can give. Isn't that the truth? He invites you to 
be a part of ministry. He invites you to do what you can for others. He invites you to teach. We have Liz here who teaches many, many times the children in, the, in, our, in our church. We have Sunday school teachers who teach. We have Sunday school teachers who teach your children right now. We have you who, who give money regularly into the, into the coffers, into the offering, who help us keep the lights on, who help others go proclaim the gospel, and you proclaim the gospel. And he allows us to do these things, but yet without him, we can do what? Nothing. But Jesus invites, you provide, and I'll use it. He provides us with everything, our intelligence, our health, our stamina. We're responsible for working hard, but it is God who gives the increase, just as he did here. So Simon Peter went aboard. I guess he also all of a sudden had a crisis of conscience. He felt guilty. He left the other guys to do the work. But God says, Jesus said, bring the fish to me. So he grabs it. This gets a picture of how big and strong this man was. All right? How big and strong this man was. He grabs the net, 153 fish, and carries it to shore. He carries it out of the boat. Aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. It's another difference between the first instance of the, on the lake and now the second. The first time there were so many fish that the nets were ripped apart and the boats almost capsized. The second time, 153 fish and a net holds fast. A miracle in itself. Now I know that some of you fishermen, Steve, I can see your face. Why, what's the significance of 153 fish? What is the significance? What, okay, what, is this a magic number? Because many people, they, they love to look at these things and go, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna do all, we're gonna do spiritual gymnastics here and figure out how many, how is this, how did this come to pass? All right, it's been said in the ancient world. It was believed that there were 153 different kinds of fish. okay. Meaning, allegorically, this is what I'm trying to get at, allegorically, which means trying to squish a truth into the smallest box that we possibly can, that out of every nation in the world would come those who would be caught in God's net and saved. Okay? The gospel being so strong and the net secure that none would be lost. An interesting story. It's truth. Okay, it's truth, but this is forced. What I believe the 153 mentioned is this. There were 153 fish in that net. Takes every, every bit of going, wonder how many were really there. What does he mean by many? Because I've seen my son. He says he caught a big fish. <laughs> big to some. Might be really little to others. A large amount of fish, a great many fish to others, some. What's he mean? 10, 20, 153 of those bad boys 
that we took out of that net. We gave some to Jesus, but the rest, I'm, I'm assuming they sold them. They just didn't leave them there. Historical detail that documented the amazing fact that Jesus rules over all creation. He rules. It wasn't just a lot of fish. There were 153 of them. But we must understand even someone as powerful and gloriously awesome as the Lord Jesus is, he invites people who have fallen short to commune, to eat, and to fellowship with himself. And he's the one hosting and the one providing. Something as simple as this. Verse 12 tells us, and Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. That's what I meant about Jesus understanding human beings. These men had been frustratingly working all night long. They caught nothing. They were tired. It was hard work. And they were hungry. Come and have breakfast. Fill yourself. Even more so, come be near me. Come, sit with me so we can talk. I want you to know me better. Tell me how you're doing. A fellow Christ follower has said, Saint, no matter how far you've drifted, Jesus is always there on shore, waiting for you, for, waiting for you to return, waiting for a comforting fire, warm food, and an affirming arm to put around your shoulder. He gives grace. He gave grace to these men. And I don't know what their conversation, I don't think it was loud, I don't think it was spirited, because they were in awe. I think they were reserved. Finishing our passage this morning, I, I get that sense. Continuing in verse 12, it says, Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Things had changed after Christ's death and resurrection. Jesus didn't walk physically with his disciples as he had once done, but he certainly didn't leave them in a bind either. He was always on time. He was there when they needed. He wanted them to fail. They needed to see that they could catch nothing without him. They were left on their own to teach them a valuable lesson, and that lesson was the empty net. When fishing, using their own means, using their own power, their nets their ministry, their lives were empty. And when we do things in our own power, our lives are empty as well. 
Again, being busy is not success. But there was also the lesson of the full net. They would soon receive the spirit, the, the spirit of God who would never leave them. It was the promised. The spirit of God who would empower them to, for the work of ministry. The same spirit of God that lives within you. Are your nets full? Or are they empty? Are you listening and waiting for God to guide you? Do you want success? Wait for him. Do you want to see full nets that don't break? I do. I have family that I want to see caught in that net. I have neighbors that I want to see caught in that net. Church, there are fish all around us. Wait on his word. Obey when he speaks. And expectantly look forward to a full catch. Jesus, I pray to you this morning and thank you that you're kind, that you're loving, that you're merciful, that you seek to dine with us when we do not deserve it. Lord God, I ask you that Help us to see where we need to change. Help us to trust you. Help us to understand where we need to cast our net at. May you guide us. Because, Lord, we want to see fish. We want to see nets that are full. But we can only have that happen. You are the only way that these things can happen. And we seek you. May we learn. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.